1: Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm your host, Adam Conover. On this show, I talk to researchers, academics, and experts about the work they do and why it is so fascinating. You may also know me as the host of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, which airs Tuesdays at 10 p.m., 9 p.m. Central on True TV, or you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com, Slash Adam Ruins Everything, and the Watch True TV app. But today on the podcast, we have Kevin Hall. Kevin was on our show, Adam Ruins Weight Loss, where he discussed what happens to people who go on weight loss shows like The Biggest Loser and why it is so, so difficult. To lose weight. And folks, it is really incredibly difficult to do. On the TV episode we do about this, we talk about why almost every method that people use to lose weight, every method that people tell you, hey, if you do this, you're going to lose weight guaranteed, why it's not guaranteed, why almost none of them work consistently for everybody. It's not to say that nobody can lose weight. People do. People do do it. But it is so difficult that there is really no way for you to say, hey, I'm going to make this change. I'm going to lose weight guaranteed. And as a result, we need to take that pressure. Off of ourselves we need to we need to stop judging ourselves and judging each other based on how much weight we're able to lose and focus instead on just trying to be a little bit better every day and trying to be as healthy as we can for our own benefit and so what I love about Kevin is that he is a guy on the ground researching this topic he's a researcher at the National Institute of Health where he investigates how metabolism and the brain adapt in response to a variety of interventions to diet and physical activity and why it is so so difficult to lose weight I am so excited to have Kevin join Join us today from Bethesda, Maryland. Let's get to the interview. Uh, well, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So you're a researcher at the National Institute of Health, based in Bethesda, Maryland. That you're you're doing like big government research on uh, the topic of of weight loss and obesity, correct?
0: Big government research, yeah, sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well well, so what i'm curious about is is how did you get involved with uh doing research on contestants from the biggest loser right so
0: you know i, I we do these really highly controlled uh, diet studies here at the NIH on people with obesity, and uh, one night after kind of coming home from the lab, I uh, happened to watch an episode of uh, the Biggest Loser to kind of the tail end and um saw these folks stepping on these scales and losing dramatic amounts of weight uh, in apparently very rapid pace, and i, I couldn 't really understand what was going on because it was kind of outside my usual experience and and so I ended up uh, finding the uh, the contact information for the the show 's uh, physician um, and therefore, uh, I was able to kind of uh, get him on the phone and ask him what what the heck was really going on with these folks, and was he able to measure certain things about how many calories they were burning and those types of things and um, You know, after talking with him for uh, on a couple of occasions, we decided that uh, we might be able to collaborate and send some some uh, folks from the NIH and our collaborators out to Malibu to study a future uh, season of The Biggest Loser. And that happened to be uh, season eight.
1: That's so funny. So you were like you came home from the lab and you were like, wait, these people are running their own experiment, but it's on TV and there's no scientists there and we got to get some out there. Exactly. <laughs> That's so funny. And and uh, what what incentive did the biggest loser have to uh uh let you guys in there was it just like hey yeah sure we want to participate in science or what?
0: Well, you know, I, I can't speak to what the producer's uh, incentive might have been, but uh, the, the physician in charge of the, the care of these folks, he was very interested in, in the science and very interested in better understanding what was happening to these folks. And, and I think he appears on the show quite regularly and has some sort of influence with the producers and so was able to kind of allow us to sneak in and study these folks.
1: Right. So, so what, do you, what did you find about the, uh, about the folks on the show?
0: Yeah, so you know, we, we recognized pretty early on just by watching and everybody who sees the show can see how, how much exercise these folks are doing, just dramatic amounts of exercise, very strenuous exercise. And there was this notion in the past and still perpetuated in various health and fitness magazines and websites that if you were just able to do enough exercise, you could keep your muscle mass and prevent your metabolism from slowing down when, when you lose weight. And so that was kind of the primary thing that we were interested in in um, was that these folks were obviously doing this dramatic amount of exercise. Were they able to preserve their muscle um, and, and prevent the, f- the usual drop in metabolic rate that, that happens when people experience weight loss, especially at a very
1: rapid rate? And can you, can you just fill me in on how that works, the, lo- the, the lowered metabolic rate? So normally when people lose a lot of weight, their metabolism actually slows so that, what, they're burning less calories at a resting rate then?
0: That's right. Yeah. So just laying around resting. How many calories does your body need to sort of just function? And um, and the idea is that uh, as people lose weight, um, they lose a bit of their muscle as well. And the thought is that as they lose muscle and the sort of lean tissues of the body, that metabolic rate should fall. And uh, so the question that we were asking was, well, what if you don't let the muscle mass decrease because you're able to do enough exercise to, to actually prevent it or even build it up. And, uh, and what we saw was actually um, pretty dramatic slowing of metabolism despite the fact that they were actually able to um, relatively preserve their muscle mass.
1: Wow. So, so the, the, the fitness magazines were wrong. Even though these folks were doing an incredible amount of exercise and losing an incredible amount of weight, their metabolism still slowed dramatically.
0: Yeah, it slowed. It slowed much more than even would be expected, given the amount of weight loss, which was really? uh, something that w- something we call metabolic adaptation. Uh, it's just a fancy way of talking about the degree of slowing in excess of what you'd expect based on their new lower body size. Um, so that was that. All happened when uh, these folks were in this weight loss competition. Uh, it was a seven month competition that's televised, and and then we sort of decided after that. We kind of expected that most folks would regain some of the weight that they'd lost in the subsequent years. And so eventually we recontacted uh, these folks uh, six years later and invited them to the NIH here in Bethesda uh, to better study what happened to them in the uh, intervening
1: period. I mean, this is this is sort of what what everybody wants to know about. Reality shows, right? I mean, it's even when you watch The Bachelor, you wonder, okay, well, they they get uh they get engaged at the end, but but you know, does the marriage work out? And uh, you know, we have the exact same question about about this show. All right, y- yeah, this person lost whatever you know three digits of, of weight uh, on this show. What happened to them afterwards uh, is such a, a question that the shows never answer themselves. So, what did what did you find? Right. So,
0: you know, we sort of expected that they'd regain some of the weight. Just to kind of give you an idea, the, the average amount of weight loss um, in the actual competition part was, you know, something like 130 pounds. So wow. yeah, it's a huge amount of weight loss over a seven-month period. And then uh, six years later, they had, on average, uh, regained about two-thirds of the, the lost weight. Um, which isn't unexpected. In fact, you know, they're actually maintaining about a 13% weight loss from where they started. So it's actually pretty good, um, hmm. kind of maintenance of weight loss. It just looks bad given how low that they went after this competition. Um, so that part alone wasn't so surprising. Um, and in fact, it was encouraging that they were able to maintain some of that weight loss on average. The surprising part was that the metabolic rate was still just as low as it was at the end of the competition despite mm-hmm. regaining a substantial amount of weight. And that, that still is somewhat surprising to me. I, I still can't quite explain it. It seems like something persistent has happened to these folks in terms of their metabolic rate um, that that did not recover, despite the fact that they did recover a lot of the weight that they'd lost.
1: So it's almost like they did permanent damage to their metabolic rate by being on the show? Is that how you'd put it or
0: yeah i don't know if i would call it damage because i don't know uh i don't know if that's a the the right way to phrase it but Fair. i would say that their their metabolic rate is certainly slower um and unexpectedly slower than one would expect uh given where they started and how much weight that they'd lost and then subsequently regained and of course that makes
1: it difficult for them to keep the weight off and and uh did you did you uh bring these findings back to the biggest loser at any point or
0: well we uh so for the the follow-up study the the physician was not uh actually a part of the the um the follow-up that 6 years later so we certainly filled him in on on uh what happened in that 6 year um, follow-up period uh and we basically gave him a copy of the uh of the publication that that
1: came out did he have any reaction at all or
0: yeah, I think he was in a, a similar state of disbelief, <laughs> going so far, going so far as to su- suggest that there was possibly something wrong with the experiment. He actually wrote a letter to the editor of the journal that uh, that we published the manuscript in outlining several potential reasons why he thought there might be a flaw in the study. And uh, and we responded to those. And and we wish we could find some flaw to explain away this, this uh, effect because, like I said, we can't – we don't have a good explanation of what happened. And we really, you know, did everything we possibly could to try to explain, you know, why did we see this result, and we can't find any obvious explanation.
1: I'm just curious the uh – the contestants themselves, I mean, how did they feel after this experience or, or was there any was there any effect on them in that regard? To Because you, you imagine it's it would be very uh, it's it's quite a roller coaster to have the experience, go on TV, lose so much weight publicly, gain most of it back. Have your have your metabolism be changed, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, these are folks who obviously had tremendous amounts of willpower. And were able to stick to this, you know, very low calorie diet during the actual weight loss period for a seven-month time frame, as well as engage in a a very large amount of exercise. And in fact, they continue to do a relatively large amount of exercise even to this day. And I think that, uh, you know, they felt before the study and before these results, they felt a real sense of of shame and failure uh, that they had regained this weight that they'd so publicly lost. And, And I think that you know, by helping them understand what happened to their body from a biology perspective, the, the physiology of metabolism, it really helped um, those folks and hopefully uh, the broader community as a whole better understand that there are real biological drivers to um, obesity that resist weight loss and especially over the long term.
1: Right. That's the That's the part that I keep coming back to that that um I mean you know, obviously the biological effect is really fascinating, but I really love that you said that these people had a lot of willpower because so much of the conversation we have in you know our own uh you know society about weight loss is that willpower is the key and and you just have to push through and anyone who who's overweight is you know even if hey it's the result of you know a medical or biological condition, you can overcome it with enough willpower. And uh, I mean, it seems that we're wrong about that. <laughs> what do you think?
0: Well, I mean, I think there's a bit of a double-edged sword. For, so, first of all, I like—I I, I completely agree that there's a large group of people who, especially, comment on websites and in the comment posts and whatnot, uh, who, like, who are lean, They're not, they've never been obese in their life, and they like to c- take credit for that as some sort of huh. moral superiority. Right. Um, but, w- but what we know is that um, heritability of, of body size and obesity is, is, has a huge genetic component. Um, it, obesity is almost as heritable as height. We all kind of recognize that you know people with tall parents tend to have uh, taller children. Yep. Um, but most people don't recognize that when you actually do the math, the heritability of body mass index, uh, one of the indices that we use to, to uh, quantify obesity, is is almost as heritable as height. So there's really? a huge genetic. There's a huge genetic component to this. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, you know you can't. Uh, change your body weight, but you have to do so by making uh, persistent and continuous changes in your lifestyle in order, to, in order to do this. And it means that the folks who are um, genetically most susceptible to gaining body weight are probably not going to be the most skinny people that you know, right? Just, despite all of the willpower in the world, they can maybe not be as heavy as they would be otherwise but they're, they're probably not going to be, you know, your supermodel or something like that. Right. Um, but the other side of this coin is that there is something that people can do. I mean, your lifestyle and your behaviors is in somewhat under your control, especially if you can re-engineer your environment that is, uh, has obviously changed dramatically in the past uh, 30 years to give rise to this increase in prevalence of obesity. You know, that's the sort of... Um, two sides of the story, we know that uh, those people who are most susceptible to increasing body weight um, have a huge gem- genetic factor, but our genes have not changed in the past 30 years to drive what's now called the obesity epidemic in both the U.S. and around the world. So there's some combination of your genes and your environment that are driving um, increased body weight in people right. We don't understand we don't that understand makes... all of the details, but it, it's a it's a fascinating uh, story.
1: That makes a lot of sense because I mean, look. Uh, let let's say that we accept that willpower is is one component. You know, uh, d- just uh, you know, to entertain people who feel very strongly uh, that hey, you can overcome any obstacle, and and if you don't, it's your own fault, basically. <laughs> um, or that you know, hey, we have some control over our over our bodies. Yes, that's true, but the obesity rate has gone up. Um, in recent years, uh, by quite a lot, but yeah, our genetics haven't changed, and I would be willing to say that our, you know, the stock of human willpower on Earth hasn't changed that much either. There's, you know, there's just as many people who are, you know, uh, inclined to exercise as people who are are not, or people who are inclined to watch what they eat as people who are not. Um, probably the the portion of, you know, willpower in society hasn't gone up or down. And what what has changed is our environment and the. Foods that we're presented with and their availability, and and our—I uh, imagine the number of uh, you know the amount the amount we exert ourselves throughout the day as a base rate has changed as we've moved to a you know laptop-based uh, economy, uh, and, and so those those sort of large-scale effects must it must be a lot a, a large part of the story.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that that's you know certainly something that people believe nowadays. It's its one of those factors, unfortunately, that is, it's very hard to scientifically test that hypothesis, right? You can't just right. change the the food supply of nations in a controlled experiment and, and observe <laughs> you know, how much their body weights change, although we do have natural experiments like uh, the unfortunate things that happened in Cuba after the fall of the Soviet Union and nowadays are happening in Venezuela. Um, and we see... That when you do change the food supply and and you change uh, the economics of, of these countries in such a way as to make food more difficult to obtain, yes, they don't have obesity problems. They have much worse problems, unfortunately. But uh, but you know, I think that your, your, your hypothesis is pro- likely to be right. It's hard to prove scientifically that, that these changes in our food environment and our physical activity environment have driven the obesity epidemic, um, and that those folks with the genes that made them most susceptible to those changes in the environment were the ones who um, were the ones who actually became most obese.
1: Uh, that seems likely to me as well, but I also, yeah, I I don't know how you would test it, uh, uh, but I I think we could just give. I think the important part is probably just to give credence to the idea that there are environmental factors um, that that have some sort of effect.
0: Yeah, I don't think anyone would argue that. It's just a question of what those factors are. Are they really, uh, you know, many many individual factors that are that are helping drive this, or is it, you know, maybe the food supply is the primary driver and, and these other factors are, are secondary? I tend to believe that that the changes in the food supply and the uh, the food environment are, are are driving this epidemic, and worldwide basis. But um, I recognize that that's really a hypothesis
1: and it's a hypothesis that's very difficult to test. Right. Um, well, so um, what can we say about the you know the sort of willpower approach, right? The the um, you know you said that uh, people who are genetically predisposed and are in this uh, you know environment that we're all in uh, are probably not going to be the skinniest people on earth. I certainly uh, it certainly makes sense to me, um, but it seems like there's you know a dichotomy here between. Uh, On the one hand, it seems like progress isn't possible, and on the one hand, it seems that it is, right? I think that's the contrast that I really see here, that... Um, you know, on the one hand, you've, you're you saying, hey, I looked at these people who are on The Biggest Loser. They worked as hard as one can work. They restricted their, their diets as much as possible. They exercised as much as possible. Look at them, you know, uh, six six or seven years later, they've gained most of the weight back. That, you know, our conclusion from that should be like, man, you really can't uh, exercise the weight off. On the other hand, I know people who, you know, have changed their bodies to some degree, right? And, you know, sort of live to tell, tell the tale. Um, uh, so what, you know, what, what can we say in a general way about what people can expect of their own ability to change their bodies? Right.
0: So I think there's, you're raising several really interesting issues. And so, so let me unpack it one at a time. I think that (laughs) when you look at, when you look at the extreme sort of nature of the weight loss that the folks on the biggest loser, um, engage in and these, you know, the huge intervention that they engage in to achieve that weight loss. Um, Some of that is driven by a desire uh, to fit in better in society that severely stigmatizes people with obesity, the desire to look more normal, and um, it's perfectly reasonable for them to have those sorts of goals. But at the same time, from a medical perspective, and for folks who uh, were, you know, genetically susceptible to this obesity to begin with, um, you know, you don't need to have the huge sort of biggest loser style weight loss in order to achieve uh, benefits from a health perspective. And so this sort of disconnect between people's goals and what they'd be happy with in terms of uh, weight and uh, the sort of societal view of people fitting into normal body size uh, is often quite different than the health benefits. So for example, I think that one of the folks, uh, one of the um, interpretations of the Biggest Loser study is exactly as you said, that these people were failures, right? They had achieved somewhat of a normal body size at the end of the seven-month intensive weight loss competition, and they had regained a substantial amount of weight. However, Really, only about 5 or 10% body weight loss is required to have health benefits. And six Mm -hmm. years later, these guys were 12 to 13% on average uh, below baseline. So they probably should be considered successes. So I think that's where you set your goalposts in terms of success is a very important factor. Um, the other thing is exact, you're exactly right. There are always these anecdotal stories of people going on you know, some diet that leads to uh, not only weight loss over the short term but sustained weight loss over the long term. And you know, when we compare diets and randomized controlled trials, we often see that you know, some diet might lead to a little bit more weight loss on average – for um, diet A, for example, compared to diet B over the short term. And over the long term, most people seem to regain most of the lost weight. So there's no long term difference. But within each uh, diet, there's actually a huge amount of success stories of people who lose a lot of weight and keep it off. And uh, there are others who don't lose any weight and might even gain weight while trying to follow exactly the same diet. Really? So what we What we still don't understand is is that just a matter of people are better at adhering to a diet over one diet over the other? To what extent might that adherence difference uh, be driven by biology, differences in genes that are somehow interacting with the diet? Or to what extent might that difference in adherence and ability to lose weight? Uh, be related to your social factors. You know, do you have a supportive family uh, uh, that, that's actually ch- trying to support your diet changes? Um, are you in the right time and place in your life to make those changes? We don't know the answer to that question. I think that's you know somewhere we actually need to be moving. Um, some recent work had had some hopes that there might be some biological driver of, uh, that might be able to predict who might be most successful on one diet versus another. Um, as a function of a few different genes that had been uh, identified uh, in in previous studies. And uh, this was the first prospective study, and they found actually no uh, difference between the genes. So we really don't know what generates the successes and the failures on diets. Is it some combination of biology in the diet, or is it more likely to be a combination of these other societal factors um, in people's diets?
1: That's really interesting because, you know, I talk to, uh, you know, we do a lot of topics on our show and on this podcast where, uh, you know, everyone, uh, we sort of have this folk notion of how something works. uh, And then I go and I talk to an expert uh, who uh, says, well, actually, here's how it really works. Um, in this case, you know, people think, well, hey, diet and exercise can cause you to lose a lot of weight, um, and you know, that's that's our folk notion that people who are, are overweight are, are just, you know, not doing it correctly. And if you do it correctly, you'll 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 lose the weight, et cetera. And what you're sort of what you're saying is, uh, we actually don't understand the the mechanisms uh, that cause some people to lose weight and some people not to on these diets.
0: Right. And despite the fact that, you know, every fad diet book that's out there will tell you that, you know, they finally discovered the key science of why what we knew in the past was wrong and why most people will be successful on the new diet. Um, You know, we the other kinds of studies that we do here at the at the NIH are things like bring people in, um, basically study them for months at a time. Uh, where we actually don't let them leave and we feed them all of their food. And we control very carefully all the calories that they eat and how much is coming from carbs versus fat versus protein. And we really try to test some of these claims that people have been making about these various different diets. You know, uh, there's a very you know, very popular claim nowadays that, you know, if you just restrict carbs in your diet, it doesn't even matter how many calories you eat. Um, right. Something, the hormones in your body will change in such a way that you'll burn many more calories and therefore have some advantage for weight loss. And, you know, we've checked those kinds of claims in very controlled experiments here at the NIH Clinical Center, and they just don't hold water. So um, it. it It's unfortunate because I wish, you know, I wish we could find some magic combination of foods to eat or magic diet that we could suggest that people should eat and that that would lead to some metabolic change that would uh, drive some advantage uh, on average. But we haven't been able to find it so far.
1: Well, I'm here talking to Dr. Kevin Hall. We will be back in just a moment. So please stick around. What the is an interview? I mean, I do not know. That was Oscar-winning filmmaker Errol Morris. I'm Jesse Thorne, host of NPR's Bullseye. Allow me to introduce The
0: Turnaround, a new podcast series produced by MaximumFun.org and presented with the Columbia Journalism Review. Join me as I sit down with some of our greatest living interviewers to ask them about interviewing and why and how they do what they do. We'll go deep with some of the biggest names in media, people like Larry King, Katie Couric, Audie Cornish... You'll be among friends on The Turnaround. Two episodes a week,
1: all summer. Subscribe now and tell somebody. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to National Institute of Health researcher, Dr. Kevin Hall. You know, this is the sort of the area of science that so many Americans want a hard answer from more than any other. You know, um, it's it, weight loss is such a national obsession and uh, something that that, you know, people are are so crazy for answers about. And it sounds like it's one of the ones that we actually understand uh, uh, the least well, at least uh, among uh, the topics that we've that we've covered on our show. It just uh, I mean, what you're sounds like what you're telling me is there's there's so much more research to do on on why. I mean, the idea that, that on some of these diets, for any given diet, some people, it works for some people and not for others, and the reasons are, are somewhat mysterious, that's so striking to me.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's it's one of the factors that's very difficult in this field is that it's actually very hard to measure what people eat when they're not um, basically confined to uh, a, a study like the ones that we do here at the clinical center. Um, so we have to rely on people's self-reports about what they eat. And we know that uh, people can't correctly remember what they're eating. And so <laughs> it's, it, it's one I of those. can't. Yeah, so it's one of those uh, things that where we have to do these very expensive but highly controlled experiments to test the effects of known diet changes on people's metabolism, their appetite, and things like that. And, uh, you know, there just aren't that many facilities around to, to do that. We're fortunate to have those facilities here at the NIH, but um, most of the kind of research that's done, is basically diet prescription research, not actual diet research, right? We prescribe a bunch of people to adhere to diet A versus diet B, but we don't really know to what extent they've actually done that. And in fact, you know, we can calculate after the fact that it's very likely that people weren't adhering very well, at least after the first couple months to these diets. And so uh, it's a very difficult problem to solve. And yet, people have such strong opinions about it and based on very limited data.
1: But by the way, I have to ask who, who is signing up for these, uh, for these studies where you, they live with you and you give them all the food that they eat. It, first of all, you know, it makes you sound like a very sick man. I, I, I'm sorry (laughs) to say uh, that that you do this to people, but, but I understand it's in the name of science, but who, who agrees to this?
0: Yeah. We have a wide variety of people who volunteer for our studies. We have, uh, folks who um, we've had you know medical residents who want to study for their board exams and don't want any outside distractions we've had hmm. uh, people writing business plans for startups uh, we've had uh, we've had the you know the usual pr- you know, professional study subject who uh, basically wants a place to live and and free food and and a payment at the end for their uh, for their uh, participation in a study so you know we get a wide variety of people volunteering for our studies and you know you're right it's these are demanding kinds of things we are asking people to give up uh weeks and potentially months of their lives to kind of work with us and they do so and and uh we're very grateful for that because i think that we've you know been able to debunk a lot of myths out there about diet and and weight loss and metabolism and um and we couldn't do it without these volunteers
1: what are some of the other uh myths that you've been able to debunk uh this way
0: Yeah, so I would say that one of them is this – there's been this idea out there that uh, if you were able to cut a certain number of calories from your diet, that that would lead to a very predictable and progressive weight loss, uh, something called the 3,500 calorie per pound rule. Um, we've been able to demonstrate that that's false because it, it doesn't take into account certain physiological changes, like the ones that we observed in the Biggest Loser. The fact that metabolism slows down over time, so you'll mm. actually get progressively less and less weight loss. Um, but that sort of myth has been out there for for decades, and up until recently, dietitians were actually tested on this idea of of making um, recommendations about uh, how much calories people should cut to lose a certain amount of weight, and folks in policy were actually using those calculations to estimate how much weight loss in in the nation would be expected for soda taxes and things like that, and we've been able to fortunately uh, correct that sort of mythology with some better calculations that account for these changes in metabolism that take place. Um, you know, we talked about some of the myths about uh, you know very low carbohydrate diets and and their effects on uh, changing energy expenditure. That is the calories that the body's burning. It's 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 just been very interesting to to sort of go step by step and and take these very strong opinions and very sort of um, ideas that people have held for very long periods of time and put them to the test. I guess we have a sort of Kevin ruins everything uh, attitude <laughs> here about, <laughs> about nutrition and metabolism research.
1: That's great. Well, well, uh, the first one that you mentioned almost sounds beyond a myth to me because it it, it almost sounds like it, you're criticizing our, our, or you're debunking our, our, you know, a major mental model that people have for how, Weight works at all, you know I, I was always struck by um you know I found on the internet at one point it, it might have been on a reddit forum or something like actually this might have predated reddit, but it was it was uh uh something like that that was it was the uh the the engineer's guide to losing weight and it was you know written you know by nerds for nerds right who were like, well. You know, uh, look at your body this way. You know, you consume a certain number of calories and then you burn a certain number of calories. And all you have to do is calculate those numbers exactly. And then you'll burn more than you uh, consume and you'll lose weight as as a result. You know, your body is a closed system uh, and that's and that's all you have to do. And that always stuck with me as like, yeah, I think that's how most people think it works for the most part. Uh, but as a model, it seems like it's, it's just fundamentally maybe not faulty but simplified in ways that we don't even fully understand because the, the body is so complex because you have all these knock-on effects that you're describing of metabolism changing, hormones, all of these complicated responses to stimuli that we're only beginning to understand.
0: Right, and you know, just kind of full disclosure, my PhD is actually in physics, and so really? you know, when I first when I first started my lab here at the NIH, I, you know, one of the things that we were doing was building you know, sophisticated you know, mathematical and computer simulation models of how the body responds to changes in diet, both the number of calories that it's that you're consuming as well as the the composition in terms of carbs, fat, and protein, and so we've actually uh, you know for the first many, many years of our of my lab here at the NIH that's kind of what we did we basically built these models to correct these older concepts that didn't account for these dynamic changes in metabolism that occur or these shifts in what fuels the body's using when you change the carb fat and protein content of the diet and so so yeah we've we've developed models there's one called the NIH body weight planner that people can use to kind of uh, go online if you search for that Google that you'll find a little tool that you can use to kind of put in um, you know your goal weight and how long you want to take to reach it and and the model will, spit back to you how many calories you'll have to cut from your diet and change your physical activity to reach your goal, and then uh, perhaps more importantly, what you have to do to maintain that over time. I think that th- while that's all correct in, uh, in theory, I think that the main difficulty is, like I alluded to before, um, researchers, never mind um, individual people kind of going about their daily life, have a very difficult time knowing how many calories they're eating. Right and 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 so even though our predictions from these kinds of models that are certainly updates and better than uh, the old rules of thumb that people have used for a very long time, uh, I still find them to be probably not as useful as they could be because people don't know whether or not they're sticking to uh, the the prescriptions that that those models make. Um, so actually, we've sort of turned turned that around in recent years and and have used. Uh, tracking people's body weights over time, Uh, we did a study over a two-year period uh, where people were supposed to cut their calories, if we track people's body weights, can we actually estimate how many calories they've cut in their diet? And uh, so we actually published that recently and, and found that we could actually do that, which is kind of exciting because it means that, you know, despite the fact that we've had this problem in the past, you know, just being able to measure how many calories people are eating we now know that if we actually track people's body weight over time, we can calculate that uh, more accurately uh, and, and get a better picture about what's going on. That's why we know, for example, that when we do these diet prescription studies in randomized controlled trials and we just say, okay, you guys go on diet A and you other guys go on diet B, that people lose their adherence to those prescriptions pretty readily, pretty early on.
1: So given that you know, specific diets—they work for some people, they don't work for others. We're not sure why. Super intense exercise and nutrition—in uh, the case, like in the case of the Biggest Loser—you know, doesn't have—you uh, uh, know, clearly repeatable beneficial effects. Um, uh, calorie counting—people aren't really able to measure their calories, etc. cetera. Uh, all of these different sort of strategies that that people. Uh, you know, gravitate towards when they're thinking about their uh, how to lose weight. Uh, None of them seem to really work effectively. Is there a general, you know, not not in terms of of a specific diet or exercise plan, but is there a particular pattern that you notice in people who are able to lose any amount of weight successfully, like a certain way that they go about it or a certain uh, attitude that they have? Or is there... You know, is is there any sort of you know broadly applicable statement that you can make um, uh, about what works better than anything else?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there isn't a, a, a definitive answer to that question, but people have done research investigating the success stories, right? So is there something in common about the success stories? Even the folks on The Biggest Loser, who I would consider, you know, some of them were very successful, others less so. What describes the difference between the successes and the failures? And um, this is not just from our work, but from many other people's work. There seems to be some general patterns. One is that um, the folks who are typically successful have tended to um, invest a lot of effort in this process that's persistent over time. They do a lot of physical activity uh, in terms of exercise. They tend to watch their weight more regularly, so they weigh themselves more frequently than people who uh, are not as successful. Now, of course, you've that that might be because the folks who are not as successful are know that when they step on the scale, they uh, they might not like what they see, but um, that is a, a behavior that's common t- for successes. They do try to restrict calories and fat calories in particular, and a lot of them eat breakfast, so more so mm. than the than the failures. Now, again, that's that's not a prescription for some individual to to. Uh, you know, eat a low fat calorie restricted diet, exercise a lot and eat breakfast. That's not what I'm saying. But those are the patterns of behavior that are common in, in people who have demonstrated success over the long term.
1: But there are also plenty of people I mean, I I, I know, um, uh, from my own experience, who do all those things and don't have those uh, successes, right?
0: Absolutely. So and I think that the The question is, uh, could we identify and personalize some sort of lifestyle intervention in uh, individuals in order to maximize their success? And uh, we don't know the answer to that question right now. What seems to be true is exactly as you said, when you look at the average uh, and you kind of look at the average weight loss uh, for almost any sort of lifestyle intervention that you can think of, Uh, The average follows a very typical pattern of people losing weight for a few months and sort of plateauing after around six months or so and then slowly regaining the weight that they lost. And um, within each of those sort of average patterns, there's the successes and the failures. And and we don't know right now how to ahead of time identify what diet lifestyle intervention um, is going to be most successful for person A versus person B.
1: Well, I'd like to turn in the time we have left from a discussion of, you know, the the science behind what enables people to lose weight or not to a little bit more of the, you know, social and and moral dimension of the of the issue. Um, Because uh, first of all, I want to say, you know, I realized through this uh, uh, conversation that we've been using the the word success and failure a little bit to to describe um, uh, folks who who lost weight or didn't. And, you know, I want to say I don't Consider anyone who who you know has uh, goes through one of these programs and doesn 't lose weight a failure um, in fact, to me, the whole point of uh the episode that we did, and the conversation we're having now is to show that people can do everything absolutely everything quote right, right everything they're told to they can have the most willpower they can exercise the most um and still not lose weight for what are essentially mysterious reasons um uh that that they don't truly have control over uh uh so our conclusion after looking into that in this episode uh in the episode of t v that we did. Was essentially that the the moral judgment that we put on ourselves on, e- on and on each other that uh, you know if you don't lose weight that it's your own fault and that it's something to be corrected in you and that you need to simply work harder is uh is a terrible thing to do to ourselves and to do, and to do to each other and you know we end by saying hey look you should always if you want to try to be a little bit better tomorrow than you were today you know try to exercise a little bit more try to eat a little bit better you probably know what those things look like so so go ahead and do them but remove that goal and remove that you know uh uh that judgment of yourself based on whether or not you're able to achieve you know whatever whatever goal you've set um uh and that yeah, that that was our conclusion. I want to know. uh I'm curious to know if you uh, share it at all.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that you're right that the, the sort of moral aspect of this and the fact that folks who have never battled with their weight sort of view this as entirely within a person's control, and it's the personal responsibility issue, um, you know, negates the fact that we know about the the genetic predispositions and the fact that the environment has changed so dramatically to make it even more difficult for those folks with the genetic predispositions to maintain a quote-unquote normal weight. Um, And I think that the other aspect is that we want to dissociate some of the perhaps unrealistic goals that folks have to try to, to, quote, unquote, look normal um, and the, from the uh, health aspects of changing right. your behavior in a healthy way. You know, we know that independent of weight loss, increasing your exercise and physical activity is good for your health, whether or not you lose a pound or even gain a pound of body weight. Uh, we know that eating, uh, you know, whole foods, types of diets that are limited in processing and limited in, you know, refined carbohydrates and saturated fat and, and, and sodium and things like that are, are likely to be better for you than uh, the alternative. And so, you know, being able to make those kinds of choices in a consistent way as opposed to a crash diet plan or exercise plan with the primary purpose of losing weight, I think is the, is the message that we want to get across. It's, it, you, you should really be trying to make behavior changes that are going to be better for your health, whether or not they make any difference in terms of your body weight, and not focus solely on the scale and, and using the scale as the arbiter of success and failure, as we probably, uh, in particular me, had been using it in the, in the context of our discussion earlier.
1: Yeah, um, I, I mean, yeah, and th- that's the point for me. Is is it feels to me that weight as an uh, as a marker of anything needs to be we we need to dramatically de-emphasize how much we use it in this discussion. I don't mean this discussion specifically. I mean in the social discussion, right. um, uh, because you know people treat it. A, a, almost exclusively as a, as a proxy for health, you know, um, uh, that, that, you know, as though weight were the primary marker of health in a person. I, I have friends who have, you know, uh, uh, stories of going to the doctor and being told that by doctors, even that, that, you know, that, uh, that, 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 that's something, you know, that they need to correct immediately, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, <laughs> the, the thing I take from this discussion is that we don't have direct control over our weight. We, we can't, it doesn't se- seem like we can uh, uh, simply change our behavior in this discreet way and and uh, uh, get a weight change to come out immediately. Um, we do have a, a you know control over our over our behaviors to some extent, um, but that you know we need to take that pressure off of ourselves to to uh, conform to a standard.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a a very tricky line, because on the one hand, we can say that there's a a large genetic and environmental component to to this problem of obesity. And there are certainly, we don't want to say, okay, well, I'm just going to be whatever weight, you know, I'm going to end up at, I don't have to... Make any sort of effort to change my lifestyle to eat better, or or increase my physical activity, or, or engage in healthy behaviors. In in some, that it's just a it's it's destiny. There there are things that people can do, um, and. And it requires persistent effort. And I think that's one of the messages of the Biggest Loser folks is that these folks are actually successes. They continue to devote a substantial quantity of their day to exercise, and they continue to try to eat a a healthy diet. Um, It doesn't take over their entire lives. Um, You know, I have a a colleague of mine who um, runs a weight loss clinic in Ottawa, and he, he, his perspective when treating his patients is to live the healthiest life that you can continue to enjoy over time. In other words, don't engage in some crash dieting program that you know you can't sustain just for the sole benefit of losing weight. Um, you know, make healthful changes to your, to your diet and your physical activity programs uh, that, that you can sustain over time and yet still enjoy your life because, after all, you want to maximize your enjoyment while also maximizing your health. And uh, I think that that's an appropriate way to to put things. While at the same time, society as a whole needs to recognize that there are drivers of this obesity epidemic that are probably related uh, mostly to changes in the food system and that there are things that we can do as a society uh, to to make... uh, our food environment a healthy uh, a healthier one and, um, and we need to think about that so we shouldn't just say oh this is all a personal responsibility issue as we discussed before or that we're defeated and we can't do anything about the problem at either the individual or the society level um, we have to do both and uh, that's what uh, we're going to have to engage in serious discussions about that um, not just here in the U.S. but around the world
1: right and yeah, I'd agree that the that the important thing is uh making changes that that you can live with, you know. Um uh the the message that we talk about on our show, I, I I tried to build on from my uh from my own experience where uh you know, I used to be, you know, in my 20s, I was very unhappy with how much I weighed and I was also unhappy with like uh, my health. And so I started exercising. I started trying to eat a bit better. Um and for a while, I, I was very very much using uh, weight as a proxy for that, you know. And I was like, I gotta get the weight down. And I was like, I would feel shitty about myself if I uh, if I didn't, you know. Um, if I like backslid a little bit, I remember having that feeling of like, okay, I'll just, you know, I'll run, I'll add a mile to my, uh, you know, I was running a couple times a week, and I was tracking everything on a spreadsheet, how much I ran. And I was like, okay, I'll add a mile, and I'll and I'll try to lose some weight that way. And then I wouldn't, and I would be really frustrated, like, oh, why is why am I not losing the weight, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I ran a marathon at one point, at which point I did lose a bit of weight, not a ton. That for me was the max, you know, training for a marathon. I was, I was running, uh, uh, six miles three times a week. And then on weekends I would go run 20 miles, you know? Um, and I did that, I did that for about six months. And I think, I think I lost, 10 pounds 12 pounds something like that you know from what my weight had been before and then of course you know once i stopped training for the marathon i gained most of that back and i was like i think that was my max and that was it still didn't bring me to a point where people would be like oh man that's a that's a skinny guy over there you know like um despite that that was the most i could ever work and so i think that was the point at which i sort of gave up the uh uh the weight fixation and now i just sort of try to eat well, an exercise for its own benefit. And I think I probably do weigh after doing that for about, you know, six or seven years now, I think I probably do weigh uh, five pounds less than I would if I didn't do those things. But I know more importantly, that I that I sort of benefit from them in terms of my overall health, I feel better, I, I you know, I feel more confident, I feel like my skin is probably better, or whatever, you know, um, it, it's all of those Effects, you know, seem to me to be the most important ones. And that's why for me personally, I I feel like deemphasizing weight as something that I'm thinking about has actually been the most helpful thing.
0: Right. Now, I think that your your interpretation is exactly right. I, I, what I worry about is the folks who have tied their body weight to those lifestyle changes so tightly that they basically, because they don't see dramatic amounts of weight loss, they simply give up those healthful lifestyle changes. Right. And, um, and I think that that's probably far too common. Um, alternatively, they, people can, for short periods of time, make huge you know, changes in their diet that are clearly not going to be sustainable. Um, you know, you you probably can't train for a marathon uh, every day for the rest of your life, right? That's just not yes. – uh, that's not sustainable for most people. And so um – you know, I think that the, the, the message is exactly as you said, you know, you can make changes in your lifestyle that, that will improve your health and will improve your well-being, um, but you have to make those changes that still make you enjoy your life, and they have to be persistent. And whether or not that leads to a huge change in weight, and for some people it might, and for some people it might not, uh, is, is almost independent of whether or not you're successful keeping up those changes.
1: That's that's uh, I-, I couldn't imagine a more succinct way to put it, and uh, I-, I really appreciate you putting it that way. Um, and uh, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show to talk to us about this, Kevin. It's been uh, it's been really uh, really enlightening. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, thank you so much again, Kevin, for coming on the show. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Sharon Morris. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. That would really help us out a lot. And once again, Adam Ruins Everything is back with all new episodes Tuesdays at 10 on True TV. Or you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything. And the Watch True TV app. Until then, that's it for us today. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned.
0: Listener supported.